Welcome to episode 17 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us this week, we've got one returning guest. So welcome back, Andrew Leyland. Hello. And for his first time on this podcast, but far from his first podcast ever, we also have Mr. Paul Spataro from the Two True Freaks Network. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. Could My pleasure, absolutely. We are back to an Assistant Editor's Month release of a Marvel comic. And I believe Andy was on for the previous one as well, right? The Trial of Galactus? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Trial of Galactus, that was me. Yeah, this time we're looking at The Kid Who Collected Spider-Man, which is the second half of Amazing Spider-Man 248. And -hmm. it was called out specifically as the title of the story, so we're going to disregard the first half where Spider-Man fights Thunderball. It was written by Roger Stern, penciled by Ron Friends, inked by Terry Austin, colored by Christy Max Scheel, lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by Dan DeNatal for Assistant Editors Month. Cover date was January 1984, but the actual release date was on or near October 4th, 1983. And as mentioned, it was number 17 in the countdown. So we'll do a quick plot synopsis and then get into the rest of it. The plot synopsis is actually very quick. It's only, As we said, it's only half an issue to begin with. Spider-Man is visiting a boy who's in a very stark room. At night, we don't know exactly what's going on, but it does not look like a bedroom. There's no furnishings or anything aside from the bed. And as they talk for a while, Spider-Man kind of discusses his history, how he got his powers, with slight vague version of the death of Uncle Ben and why he decided to become a hero rather than an entertainer, and ultimately ends revealing his secret identity to this boy, who is a huge Spider-Man fan and has had newspaper articles written about him. He reveals his identity when the boy promises not to share that information with anyone for as long as he lives. And as Spider-Man leaves, we find out he's in a cancer clinic. He's been diagnosed with leukemia, and this boy has probably just a few weeks left to live. So, you know, one of those nice, upbeat, rah-rah, go-get-em endings, I guess, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not not rah-rah, but frankly, I remembered this story very well, and I thought... I didn't think as highly of it as I should have in memory. I liked it a lot when I first read it, and I don't know if I ever read it again in between. And yesterday I was thinking as I was getting ready to do this and I sat down to read it, I expected it to seem very, very cliche as I read it because that's kind of what I remembered. And yet, although it hits all the cliche points, I did get goosebumps as I read it. So I think it hits them, but it hits them extremely well. I bought this off the stand. Because Amazing Spider-Man, obviously, is a long time forever. Uh, I was buying it. I was buying the American editions by the time this one came out. It's one of the few comic stories I've ever shared with my grandma when I used to live with her. Because this came out, what, 83? So I was, what, 11 at that point. And uh, she read this 11-page story and she thought it was really good as well. She actually teared up a bit at the end. So it's a comic book story that actually provokes an emotional reaction from somebody. It's very memorable which is probably why it makes this list for a short 11-page story to make the 75 best Marvels ever. And when, if you have a look at that list, and it's a contentious list in many cases, that this is the is a testament to how powerful and how memorable a story this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then keep in mind, too, and I know we'll get to it later, but they also even did it as an episode on the TV series as well. Yeah, the 90s cartoon did it, didn't they? Only they changed the main character to a girl. Right. And, and, and they kind of 
for lack of a better term, they dumbed it down slightly. And yeah, that was they, more of my memory of the cliche was more from that because I hadn't sat down and picked this up again. And then as I read it through, the, story, the, the word that kept coming to mind for me was elegant. This was just written in such an elegant fashion. And, and the artwork shouldn't be discounted because Ron Friends did such a beautiful job of creating a Steve Ditko Spider-Man. Yes. Yeah, he's very definitely following in Ditko's footsteps, which is it's quite jarring after you've got used to John Romita Jr. on the main strip for some considerable time. But Terry Austin just brings something wonderful to the inking. And it's it's just such a wonderfully slick looking comic book for the time that it was made. It's the artwork is gorgeous. The artwork's fantastic. I don't know if this was Friends auditioning for the book because he will take over in two or three issues time when John Jr. quits after Roger Stern leaves with issue 250. Friends will come on as the regular pencil with issue 251. So whether that was the idea, I don't know. But he certainly nails the Ditko-esque Spider-Man without it being a slavish copy of Ditko's Spider-Man. It's very much a slick 1980s comic book. But Spider-Man has that otherworldly weirdness to him that Ditko brought to it. And um, just his poses are very Ditko. And the, the webbing on the costume is very different to how the Ramitas drew it. It's it's just great. The artwork's brilliant. The story's brilliant. It it deserves to be on the list, really. It's yeah. a surprise that it's on the list, but it deserves to be there. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. And, and when you look at the artwork, there are some clues to the ending as you go along. Mm. Uh, you know, the the bed that, that, that uh, Timmy is in doesn't look like a traditional bedroom bed. You know, mm-hmm. it's a hospital bed is what it is. There are some things in the room. At one point, I think you see, you know, you see a bureau mm-hmm. and, and he's got a Star Wars poster hanging on the wall. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I'm looking at it now and I'm trying to figure out there's like a, a zipper tone floor. I guess it's a rug, which you wouldn't expect in a hospital room, mm. but it's not a traditional hospital either. It's a cancer clinic. Yeah. And the rug has been thrown down. If you go back to the first page of the story, you could see the wrinkles on it with hardwood floors underneath. Yes. So this could very well be a temporary furnishing, just, oh, here's a comfortable piece of home kind of idea. Yeah, if they're planning that he's going to be there for some considerable time and that he's probably not going home, which is certainly the implication of the story, they probably have tried to make the room a little bit more homey for him. Yeah, because I mean, there's a couple picture frames on the dressers and stuff, but really the the trunk at the bottom of the bed or at the foot of the bed with his Spider-Man collection, that seems to be what really he responds to. And that's, you know, what Jacob Conover's story was about, you know, referencing J. Jonah Jameson as the publisher saying, well, I hope he's wrong about him because he means so much to this little boy. And they do have some nice touches. You know, part of the collection we see is a collection of the retractions that Jameson has had to publish when he found out that Spider-Man was not Electro. And, you know, again, all those (laughs) Ditko and Lee stories where they said, oh, it's Spider-Man behind this. And then it's proven it's not. Well, there are retractions. It's a sign of the times as well that he's got like film reels of Spider-Man when he did his his appearance on all those variety shows that he'd appeared on back in the day. Now he, he would have them on, they'd be on YouTube, I presume. So yeah, Timmy you, or wouldn't necessarily. Even, yeah. Or he'd have them saved on his hard drive or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, or the USB stick or burnt to disc or whatever. But yeah, he would now have that in a more up-to-date and modern fashion. But as a, a fan, perhaps it's still entirely possible he's tracked down the original film reels. Mm-hmm. So even though you can make it fit, even though this story's got over 30 years old at this point. Yeah. I love the fact that he's collected all the newspaper clippings because Spider-Man was in the newspaper a lot, as he would have been. 
And there's some really lovely touches, like he's dug out bullets out of a wall that Spider-Man avoided and kept him in a jar. That's a really lovely touch. And that Peter tells him his origin, as well as explaining to him mechanical web shooters. And he basically gives him the full lowdown on who he is. Yeah, it's actually a nice example of the periodic recaps. They do re-explaining the origin and the way his powers work for new readers, but with a very good reason for him to be doing that. Mm. It's it's, it's a really nice relationship as well, because Timmy's not at all downbeat throughout the entire story. I was just going to say, and I'm glad they never revisited it to tell us what happened to Timmy, you know, how long he lived after this, or or somehow he was miraculously cured, and here he's now he's 17 years old, or some stupidity like that. Yeah. They it, never did that. They never went back and revisited the story at all. And and I think does, that's important. This is, this had to be standalone. Yeah, yeah. It does seem like even, even your Bendises or your Mark Millers have realized that you need to leave this alone and not go back to it because that's what gives it its power that it's 11 short pages and then you've got the kicking ending and then it's over with. And we've never referred to it again as far as I can remember. Although I think somebody has mentioned that he, the kid was referred to again somewhere, but I don't remember where. Uh, but far as I'm concerned, it was never mentioned again. My head canon will not allow for that. Just, I, I'm, I'm looking at it again and really, really paying close attention. And I'm, I'm really loving the artwork in this book. Mm. I, I think this, this, this may be as, as, as well as he ever drew. And, but then, you know, as, as, Blaine, you pointed out the uh, the inking on it, but also look to the coloring and look at the, the use of light and, and dark and, and, you know, everything in here. It's it's just so well put together. And it, there's the little touch as well. He's got very short, cropped, spiky hair. And his hair is messy because he had the uh, mask on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, no, I mean the kid. Oh, I'm talking about Peter. Oh, I'm on about Timmy. So there's the implication there has he been going through chemo. Mm-hmm. So is that another clue? to the to the end of the story but it, it's just and then at the end when he, he takes his mask off and tells him who he is when he takes the mask off is that like a a curtain behind him like to separate areas which would be it, a telltale thing in a hospital it does look like it yeah because when he's walking to the window it looks like, like there's something there as well mm-hmm. when spider-man stands before the window deciding whether to tell him or not mm-hmm. yeah or is that part of the bed it looks too high to be the bed as far as i can see but it's one thing I remembered from the cartoon uh, adaptation of this was when he does reveal his identity. And, and if my memory is faulty, I apologize, but I seem to remember it was a, a little girl in that episode instead of a little boy. And as soon as he takes off the mask, she's like, oh, you're Peter Parker, the guy who took all these pictures, which I always thought just seemed so forced. Mm-hmm. Now, I can accept from a no prize point of view that a kid who follow Spider-Man so closely would be somewhat familiar with Peter Parker as the person who took all these photographs. He'd know his name. But mm-hmm. to, to recognize him the second he takes the mask off, no. And in this story, because I remembered it that way, because that's what I had seen most recently, but in this story it's so much better done because he explains who he is. Mm-hmm. And the kid gets a huge kick out of it, but he doesn't immediately recognize him. Yeah. I would buy that he recognized the byline, recognizing him as the photographer. Now, I've read every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, at least until I got behind at the start of Spider-Verse, but I've got those queued up and ready to go. What I don't recall is whether or not this was published before or after Peter, you know, broke away from the Daily Bugle for a while and published his book of of Spider-Man photos. Because if that had happened already in continuity or if that was part of the backstory in the cartoon, then I would buy that an avid Spider-Man collector 
might recognize his face as the face on the back of the book jacket of that Spider-Man photography collection that he bought. Mm. Right. Yeah, because that's, that's not been published yet. Yeah, because I, I don't recall if that happened before or after the story was published. Oh, the, the book of published Peter's photos was McFarlane and Michelini. Oh. So that's well after this. Okay, yeah, we've got a good seven or eight years to go then. Yeah, it, he's on the book tour for that in the early 300s. Okay, yeah, so had that... Cause it, it's been a while since I read them. I can't remember what order it went, because mm. when I read All of Amazing Spider-Man, it was a Christmas vacation. I just pulled out the DVD-ROM, started with Amazing Fantasy 15, and ran through it. Mm. So... So it all just blurs into one after a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, when you're reading 70 to 80 issues a day, that can happen. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah. So that that's one... Yeah, in order to, for the kid to recognize him, for me to buy that, it would have to have been after that book was published. So they mm. could say, hey, I recognize you from that book on that shelf over there. Well, also yeah. to promote the book, Peter went on television. Yeah, yeah. So that I would buy. But Yeah. So it, it works much better here. It works much better here than it did in the TV adaptation. And it's just such a, a well, well-written and well-drawn story. It's a surprise that it's on the list, to be honest with you. Because it's not an event. It's not the first appearance of anyone major. It's not a death. It's, it's a very unusual story to be in this list. I mean, even if you only look at the top 20, mm-hmm. it's an unusual one to have, to have made the top 20. But good. I'm glad mm-hmm. that it did. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, well, there's usually the three elements we talk about, right? And one of them is impact on continuity. As we said, this has next to none. Yeah. It's just, a lot of it's just the story. Yeah. So we know Andrew bought this off the shelf. Was it the same for you, Paul? Yes, uh, this came out, and uh, uh, sometimes I get embarrassed to admit how old I am, but I was in college when this came out. And uh, this was about, well, this was 1983, you said? So, yeah, so I was still in, in college, and, and we had the store by my house that uh, they would put aside. It wasn't actually on the newsstand. We actually had a comic store that I would go to and pick them up, and they'd, you know, they had a pull list for me at that time. But I, I recall reading it and loving it right off the bat, and then, like I said, for some reason, my memory of it was not quite as strong as sitting down and rereading it. So if anybody thinks that this is a cliched story or anything, I suggest you do what I did and sit down and read it again because it is very powerful. And, and it lives up to every memory I had of it. In fact, it exceeds every memory I had of it. Yeah, it's it's from that. I think Roger Stern's run is second only to, to Stan and Steve. I think he mm-hmm. had a fantastic run on the title. He had a great understanding of who he was and his position in the Marvel Universe. And uh, he didn't put a foot wrong in his entire Amazing Spider-Man run. This is a great issue, generally. The first 11 pages is wrapping up last issue story, which is Spider-Man versus Thunderball. And any issue that comes with a James Bond quote, you know, big thumbs up. But yeah. <laughs> it shows the two different sides of Spider-Man. Spider-Man was always more than capable of tugging at your heartstrings and hitting you in the emotional gut in its storylines. And the first 11 pages of this issue is just a knockdown, drag out fight with Spider-Man bouncing around and being funny. So you've got the two different sides of the character there, the tragic backstory with the, 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 the superhero character who seems just to be out to have a lot of fun. And the fact that it's split right down the middle with two completely different stories in this one issue is, is, is brilliant. It's really well done. It's an excellent issue generally, but this particular story is obviously very memorable for all mm-hmm. the reasons that it stays with you long after you finish reading it. I think that's it, always the test of a successful story. Sorry. Right. I think it bears mentioning. I think the cover bears mentioning on this because I think it's a, it, in execution, it's a good cover. In concept, I think it's a great cover by John, John Romita Jr. and Terry Austin. And what it is, is it shows Timmy 
and it appears he's either looking at or hanging a poster of Spider-Man fighting Thunderball and being surprised as Spider-Man comes up from behind him and puts his hand on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. So it manages to capture both of the stories in this book. Because it's a really it's a really good thing as well, because that could be one of Peter's photos. Yes, it probably so is, I, in fact. I like that angle of it. I, I do like the cover, yeah. It captures both sides of the story without actually giving anything away of what you're about to read. And the, the cover almost plays to the lighthearted nature of Assistant Editor's Month and not giving away the the gravity of this story. But it doesn't give away that it's Assistant Editor's Month on the cover either. A lot of them had that stamp on, didn't they? Yeah. That it's Assistant Editor's Month. This one doesn't, for whatever reason. And I'm just getting all weepy and nostalgic for the fact that this cost a whopping 25 pence. Back in the day when I could get four comics for a quid. Or 60 cents US, which would make it 75 cents Canadian. Yeah, you always got the short end of the stick over there, huh? Mm. For a portion of the time. but Yeah, there, there was a stretch there where uh, where everything turned around. Yeah, and now we're not doing so well again. But and then, well, comic books have always gouged everybody anyway. So <laughs> ever since ever since they they I, I I really think ever since they went from twenty cents to twenty five, they've just been on an upward spiral that that has never stopped. Yeah, and and I, I don't think they care what the ramifications for the audience are. But I've gone into that that rant so many times on Back to the Bins. I'm, I I apologize for bringing it here. One of the things I do want to mention about the artwork, just scrolling through it here, certainly went to the last couple of pages. Steve Ditko was master of shadows and light in the same way that Will Eisner was, and then Frank Miller copied later on. Ron Friends does a brilliant job of aping that in the last couple of pages. The shot where Spider-Man is stood in front of the window, he decides what to do. And then when he takes the mask off, the light shining through the blinds on his back, and then just the way they've shaded his face as he stands before Timmy and tells him his name. All of that's just gorgeous. And it carries on to the next page. The, the the blinds are throwing light on the background of them when they're chatting. And then over both of them, why they're hugging. So you've got that, the, that Peter is in the light as Spider-Man and he leans into the darkness that Timmy's going through to give him a hug and then steps back out. And it's it's wonderful. The shading and the lighting and the colouring and the artwork, it's all just masterful. And it carries on the last page when he stands on the wall of the, the cancer clinic and he just bows his head as he as he has a minute to realise what's going to happen to this kid. The top half of Spider-Man is shaded by the trees. Oh, yeah. And that's his moment to compose himself, too, when he gives Timmy the hug. Yeah. What Timmy can't see is that he's crying. Yeah. And it's it, that's another great part of the story. It's Peter that loses it, not the, not Timmy. If if uh, with the exception of the use of Zipatone, which uh, Terry Austin was a frequent user of, uh, if they presented you with an original page of art from this book and told you it was Steve Ditko, I don't think you'd tell them. I don't think you'd see that it was not. Mm. And, and uh, when it comes to Spider-Man, Steve Ditko was a master. Steve Ditko was the Spider-Man artist. Well, for me, it's John Romita Senior, but well, that's, yeah. I, but I will accept differing <laughs> uh, differing views on that particular point. I, I, they're both within spitting distance of each other, let's be honest. And I think Ditko gets the crown simply between the guy who came up with it. But certainly Ramita is deserved of his very, very, very close second place. Yeah. I think that leaves us in the portion of the podcast that I have shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everybody should be listening to. It'll take them a while to get to Deep Space Nine, but right now they're still on uh, Next Generation. Should be in early season four at this point. But this is the part where we look for messages, morals, and meanings to see if there's any messages that they're trying to portray and get across through this story. Cancer's a bitch. Well, I think... <laughs> I, I don't know if I should be laughing at those words. 
you know, it's, but, it's, you know. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's summing it up in its most basic terms. But I think we're, we're seeing one, the strength of this young boy emotionally and, and his maturity without it, without it seeming unrealistic at all. And, and that's, that's a, just a, a hugely positive message that we're getting there, as well as Peter's being so touched by this boy's story and this boy's personality and, and what he's going through. So I, I don't know if it's a specific message that we're getting, but I think there's, as best as I can encapsulate it, it would just be that even on, in the darkest of times, there's positives to be found. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's as, as close as I can come to getting, you know, giving a message for this story. Yeah, I would agree. It's not so much about the message as the story. And yeah, we see that Tim at least is strong and completely forgets his condition when Spider-Man is standing in front of him. You know, I, I hope that a lot of that strength comes through at, at other times in his life. But I mean, for this moment, Spider-Man had a chance to make this boy's life better and he took it. I suspect, based on reading this short story, that this young boy is always as upbeat as you can be with the condition he had. That he's he's never one to sit and, and drown himself in pity, self-pity. Yeah, I doubt that he would have gotten the write-up from Jacob Conover that inspired Spider-Man to come in if that were not the case. Right. And I don't know why, but I wrongly thought that it turned out that we were going to see that it was actually his obituary that we were reading. And, and that would have been just so morose that that was one of the reasons why my memory of the story was not as strong as it is, or, or as, as it should have been, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, and rereading it, the, that was a choice that was much, much better than what I thought they had done in, in my false memory. Yeah. But I think it's, it bears mentioning that it's basically a plea for Spider-Man to come and visit this child. Not not an obituary. Yeah. And and that would have been such a downer to end it on, you know, yes, Tim died two weeks ago or something like that. It was, no, he only has two weeks to live, which is still a downer, but we leave with him still alive and still having the positive influence of having Spider-Man visited him, visiting him. So yeah. there is a positive message despite the negative circumstance. There is. It may be possible that in your memory it's kind of conflated with the similar Fantastic Four story that Andy and I already talked about, Hero. That could be. That could be that that because that one the child did die, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah, it's the whole thing comes across comes out in that one when the doctor's trying to essentially figure out how to fill out the death certificate. So it's I, you know I I read it yesterday and I got goosebumps reading it and I have to tell you I'm sitting here today and I'm getting them all over again. So this it just shows you look the the power of this 11 page story. Yeah, this I actually in a lot of ways prefer this to Hero partly because you know we we don't get as much of of the story of Tim before he got the illness, but this is, it's not one where you can sort of criticize Tim for a choice. Whereas with the Human Torch story, we do understand why the boy made such a horrible choice and all the other factors in his life leading up to it. But leukemia is just something that happens and there's really nothing you can do to, to largely predict or prevent it in any one individual. So we can't say, well, you put yourself in this situation. That's just not the case here. Hero felt like an attempt to do something worthy that tugged at the heartstrings. And to be fair, Byrne pulls it off. This feels like a good story that happens to pull at the heartstrings, even given its topic. Do you know what I mean? But it pulls at the heartstrings in a affirming way, as yeah. opposed to a depressing way. It, yeah. It's you know, Again, it's telling you that even with this horrible, horrible thing that this child is going through, there's joy and there's happiness to be found. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I think at this point, all we're left with is something that we've probably strongly foreshadowed already. Why do we think it landed at this point in the rankings? Uh, I, 
don't know, because just looking at the stuff that's around it, it's interesting that it's directly below another Roger Stern story, the Avengers Under Siege arc, which is really, really good. And then Annihilation, the event, is above it. And then it's it's more important comics, Hulk 1, Fantastic Four 1, etc. So it, I don't know. I don't know why it's ended up where it's ended up. It seems It seems it's ended right slap bang in the middle of a bunch of important ones and some major events. And then somewhere along the line, somebody have remembered, yeah, we're voting for good stories. And you've got Daredevil 181, Under Siege, and then this all in a row. Mm-hmm. I do, I'm not saying it doesn't deserve to be here. And I think it deserves to be on the list of the best Marvel stories ever. Why it's ended up, where it's ended up on this particular list, I've not got a clue. No idea. Yeah, I yeah. can't give you any further insight into that. And what, what I, I don't know if I am typical or atypical. But as I said, my memory was probably based more on the cartoon version, which not that the cartoon version was bad, but it did not have the gravitas of this story and it did not have the elegance of this story. So my memory of it wasn't as strong as it should have been. And rereading it rekindled that memory and, and, and emphasized to me how it does belong in this spot. So I'm, I'm absolutely fine with it being where it is. But like Andy, I'm a little surprised that it did manage to find that spot. Yeah, I mean... We talk about the three elements that usually put things on the list. There's the sheer entertainment value, there's the significance to continuity, and there's the messages and morals and meanings. And we are, generally speaking, we're at the point in the list where we've got at least two of those. This doesn't, right? This, I mean, yeah, there is a message there, but it's not really about the message. It's not going to be life-altering in terms of, I'm going to change the way, you know, I, I make my decisions going forward because of this story. It's just that first one, how much impact this has as a story that I think makes the difference. And there's almost no significance to continuity. It's just all that first point. It also, the the glimpse it gives us into Peter Parker's humanity. I think that's the other thing about it, the strength of it. You know, we, we know, we, you know, from, from 247 issues before this, we, we know what his personality is. But this man, or, or, or his deep-seated sense of responsibility that's, created you know his life but we see it encapsulated in in 11 pages here not only that but we get a recap of his origin story on top of that yeah especially in the way that he doesn't want anyone to know that he actually went that's spider-man he knows he went and saw him timothy knows he went and saw him he doesn't need anyone else to know that he went he's not doing it for any publicity or any other reason other than it's the decent thing to do that's peter that's peter parker right through yeah if anything he deliberately did it without telling people so that enemies wouldn't come and Tim get caught in the crossfire. Mm. Just to, you know, to sum it up for me, a great, great story that I'm so happy you got me to reread because my memory of it did not did not do it justice. Yeah, I would agree. It is definitely worth reading and easy to recommend. Absolutely. So I just want to thank you guys for coming on. If you have any concerns or if you guys enjoy these guys, you can hear a number of their shows over at the Two True Freaks Network. If you guys want to, and other places, if you guys want to plug the individual shows that you're on. Should I go, or do you want to go, Andy? You go first, Pop. You know, I am a regular co-host weekly on Back to the Bins, where we review old comics, uh, theoretically picked at random. And an offshoot from that show, which occasionally replaces it, is Avengers Spotlight, in which we look at hopefully significant ep- uh, issues of the Avengers. And then Andy and I uh, co-host Listen to the Prophets together, where we look at Deep Space Nine, the Star Trek spin-off series, and we've started from the first episode. and. Plan to go through to the list. Yeah, in addition to doing Listen to the Prophets with Paul, I also do Hey Kids Comics intermittently with my son Michael. 
where we just pick a comic or a series of comics or overall story and just chat about it. Uh, that comes out on 2TrueFreaks.com intermittently now that he's off at university and we don't get together as much as we used to. I have a vanity project called Palace of Glittering Delights where I just basically talk about anything that interests me. Science fiction genre, comic book related. I've just gone through all of Lee Ditko's Spider-Man. So if you want to go and check that out, that'd be great. Steve Lacey and I do the Fantastic Cast, which goes from the Fantastic Four from the very beginning. We're currently deep into the 1970s. So that's fun as well. So if you, I can be found at any of those three places. And if you want to, Friend us on Facebook or Twitter or whatever and say hi. Okay. So for those of you who are reading along at home, as Annie's already mentioned, next week we're looking at the entire Annihilation event. You better get started reading that now. <laughs> yeah, it's it it's a it's a big one, but you'll hear that it, there's no question why it belongs on the list. Uh, it was collected in three hardcovers or three trade paperbacks, as well as an omnibus edition, and the individual issues can be found on Marvel Digital Unlimited and Comicsology. So that's a four-issue Drax the Destroyer miniseries, the Annihilation Prologue miniseries about Silver Surfer, Nova, Ronan, and Super Scroll that were also brand in Annihilation before the six-issue Annihilation event, which wraps up in uh, two issues of Annihilation, the Heralds of Galactus. So join us next week for that. In the meantime, please feel free to rate this and any other shows you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help them get noticed. And you can check out our discussion forum over on Facebook. So thank you for listening. Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet... One of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation. Sean Engel and Andrew Leyland. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro.